0: This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme, hundreds of prisoners were rounded up and taken to the national stadium.
1: Yeah. That you needed to be as strong as possible and not to fail and not to, how could I say, uh, Confess
0: things that could
1: harm other people.
0: President! That Michel Bachelet would be the number one choice in this election was never in doubt.
1: Having been present twice before being a commissioner, I could put myself in the shoes of that person who was making those decisions and try to think which could be the arguments that would convince them to respect human rights not only the right thing to do it, but also the smart.
0: I am delighted that the General Assembly has confirmed the appointment of Ms. Michel Bachelet. As the new United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights.
1: I mean, the Universal Declaration is still valid because it gives sort of the minimal standards how we can
0: live together. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks. In today's programme, we're returning to our special series marking the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And our guest today is Michelle Bachelet. She served as Human Rights Commissioner from 2018 until 2022 and before that had devoted many years to serving her native Chile as a government minister and twice as its president. She joined us virtually from Santiago. The link is not always the best, listeners, we apologise for that. But what Miss Batchelet has to say is well worth your time, so stay tuned. I began, as always, by asking her about her early life and whether human rights had always been a focus for her.
1: Yes, even though maybe at that time, period of time, I might not call it human rights, because probably I was not so aware about the concepts and the universal decoration and so on. But since I was a child, I was always trying to, if I would say, ensure that people will receive the dignity, the respect that they deserve, that I felt always was uh, the rights of women uh, and, and, and that women deserve. I, I mean, when, when you are younger, you don't know much. So you said, oh, we women are the same as men. Of course, today, I don't think so. I say we might be very different, but of course we have, we should have the same rights, the same opportunities. Huh?
0: As a young woman, though, Michelle Bachelet, while very aware of the inequalities in Chilean society, didn't immediately focus on politics. Instead, a visit with her sick boyfriend to the doctor encouraged her to study medicine. My
1: boyfriend had a terrible toothache, and I brought him to an emergency room in, in public health. And we had to wait for hours, and the conditions were really bad. And I said, I'm going to study medicine because I want to change. I want to ensure that people have the health condition and the health rights. That, I mean, maybe I didn't use the word rights at that time, but it was the same concept, if I may say. And in my family, they teach me the same. I mean, they teach me that every human being was equal, deserved equalities, deserved dignity, respect. And I also say that in my milk bottle, the word responsibility was there. So it was like commitment, responsibility in my September 11th, 1973,
0: the day of the military coup that overthrew Chile's then-government. After the widespread repression of the first few months, the dictatorship set up a network of 452 detention, torture and execution centres across the country. But Michel Bachelet was growing up in Augusto Pinochet's Chile when he and the military seized power in 1973 Immense repression began, with political opponents arrested, tortured and killed. For the young bachelorette, her opposition to the dictatorship limited her chances as a doctor. Later, it brought fear and loss to her entire family.
1: At that time, first of all, I was studying medicine and I tried to work at the public sector. And they beat me because I was against the dictatorship. And so I, I started working in the NGO. And we worked with the children of the people who were in jail, people who were exiled, people who were relegated to some parts of the country, people who were in prison. So I was the pediatrician of all those children, working for the rights of the children. And the NGO was called Program for Childhood Under, because we couldn't speak about leadership at that time, Under States of Emergence, we call it. And I was the pediatrician of those children. And we worked all over the country to try to support families were either in prison or, or killed, executed, or with a forced disappearance. So, so yes, human rights during dictatorship was a really, really tough thing. I mean, with the children, we we achieved that the men who were in prison would get once a week a visit for the children. We got a special session for children, so it was very nice to see these the big guys all those playing with the children and, and bonding, if I may say, with them. And they have also the other perspective with the wife, but. But we went so I I we were very really happy because of the children who are being so damaged by the dictatorship. You you're talking about,
0: about helping uh the, the children of people imprisoned. You your mother were arrested yourselves.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. My father was in prison and uh and um, he died because of torture. And I mean he was in prison because he was a constitutionalist, he was against the coup d'état. and the military itself. They took him and, and tortured him and so he had a Heart attack and he died because of the heart attack in the ile jail, and then of course we were against the dictatorship, so we did political work, but underground of course. So once once and there was a friend of my mom, and she and the torture gave the name of my mom, and then they went home and they took us, me and my mom, to Rimaldi That's a that's a torture center. Where people would disappear, so I, I had that the opportunity to interview with many other women, young women, who were from a different party, but in mean, people who were against the dictatorship. I mean, what what you did at all at that time when you were in those places that you were disappeared. Your family didn't know where you were. It was not a formal jail. No, there were jails in very that condition. The thing is not to know what is going to happen, how long that is going to last, what will be. I mean, of course, they separated me from my man as well. So I didn't know how she was, huh? And um, yeah, but on the other hand, you felt that all those things were so what was going on in the country, that you needed to be as strong as possible and not to fail and not to, how could I say, uh, confess things that could harm other people.
0: The current economic model is a legacy of the military dictatorship under Augusto Pinochet. The protests lasted for months, It was about reforming the health system, education, the rights of women, minorities and indigenous people. The entire system was in question, with calls to end the Pinochet-era constitution. You, from that, became political and government leader in Chile. It took some time. (laughs) (laughs) But for many people, for for me, outside looking in, this is the most incredible achievement to go from being arrested, at risk of torture, to become the leader of your country,
1: well, yes, I think it's because one thing that I think is very important in people's life is resilience, and for some reason, my mom was very resilient, and I am very as well. Huh? So, of course, there was times in my life I had so much rage, so much anger, uh, maybe hate sometimes as well. But then, time was passing by. We wanted back democracy. And I started saying, okay, we want democracy, we want sustainable democracy. We need to see how we can re-encounter all those children, particularly the armed forces, that for me were not strangers because I have lived in military bases, etc., with my father. So they were no strangers, but they were behaving in a very terrible way. But I said to myself, we need to the battle again, what we call it civic friendship. We don't need to say the same. We don't need to agree in the past, but we need to agree on the future. And on the other hand, at that time, I never thought I would become a leader of anything, neither minister, neither president. Center left candidate Michel Bachelet has been re elected as Chile's president in a landslide victory. Senoras ministras y senores ministros
0: to appoint Ms. Michelle Bachelet of Chile as United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. It is so decided. you got those jobs. You served your country for for many years. Some people say, OK, I've done my bit now. But you went on and took the job of UN Human Rights Commissioner. What was the thinking behind that? Did you want another challenge? Did you think you had unique experience?
1: Or? Well, the thing is that at the beginning, when they asked me to apply, I thought, no, I've done enough. Twice time, President of the Republic, ministers, I mean, my whole life, ministers. And When I looked at the last time that I went to PTA uh, meeting with my daughter, the, my youngest daughter, was like so many years ago, so many years. I, I, I was not even aware of my daughter told me, I said, I was the last time, mom when I was in fourth grade. And no, she wasn't the university. So it was like, I've been doing all the things I need. I think I, I have to do because I can help myself when I feel that I can contribute and, and make something important and transform for a better possibility. I cannot help myself or I say, okay, okay. So when Antonio Guterres asked me to apply, at uh, the beginning, I was saying to him, look, my mom was old. The truth is that living in my family for a long time, in a second place. But the situation was very difficult in the world. It was not as now, okay, it isn't even worse, but, but it was very difficult. So he, he told me, please, Michelle, please apply because really I, I need you. And I, asked, I talked to my mom. She was at that time like 90 years old. And she said to me, go ahead, go ahead because this is very important and so on. And my children, I, I sort of mentioned to them and I said, okay, mom, well, so... I, I went there, but to be honest, I knew the UN, but I knew the UN in New York, but I didn't know too much the council. So I started meeting and one of the articles that really impacted me is that was the impossible job. <laughs> because it says, because the, the, high commissioner has to be the voice of the bosses. So we have to denounce situations that needs to be known and try to ensure that governments do the right thing. But on the other hand, you need to support governments and you need to build trust with that. So they do the things. And on the other hand, in some cases, it's not a, it's not intentional. It's a case of lack of uh, capacity. So you need to support them with capacity building, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very complex, because if you are telling you you are a bad guy or bad government because you are violating the rights of your people, but on the other hand, ask them, I want to support you. In that sense, I feel that the, the political experience is very useful for that, because you had, had to negotiate or to put yourself in the shoes of the other person. I mean, having been minister, but also particularly being president twice before being a commissioner, I could put myself in the shoes of that person who was making those decisions and try to think which could be the arguments that would convince them to respect human rights. is not only the right thing to do, but also the smart thing. That is not only about talking about principles and values, because many times you don't convince politicians with that. Unless you show them, that is also the smart thing too. And that is also a challenge because with some people, whatever argument you use won't work. Uh, But also being a politician, it helped me in the past. It helped me understand that if the office I've been doing with any country, any country in the world, certain strategy that was not working, we need to rethink the strategy. I didn't want to be the historian of human rights. I wanted to have results. I wanted to think people's lives. Because the historian... It's an interesting job, but not for me. Not, that's not what I wanted to do. Black lives matter.
0: Yes, all lives matter. But right now we're focusing on black lives matter. Two officers were caught pushing 75-year-old Martin Gagino to the ground. So hard, he laid bleeding. Enough is enough. My justice, My peace. You clearly understood the challenges. You had some strategies. Was there a particular thing you thought, this is something I want to focus on. I know that you did highlight the legacy of colonialism and slavery. Was that something that 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 you really had as a priority? To be honest, not at the beginning. This came
1: particularly after the murder of George Floyd, who were the voice of the families in Europe, in the U.S., Canada, and in Latin America as well, that had this police brutality just because they were afro They were supposed to be suspicious of A, B, C, or D. And also, not only the police mentality, but also the, the lack of, as I would say, empathy of the systems, the police system, the judiciary with the families, the truth never came out, etc. and lack of justice. But in that discussion, how we deal with this report, we said, well, but we need to go further. We need to analyze why is this? What are the effects of, and the legacy of colonialism and slavery also lead to the situation of African descendant in many places in the world, the, of discrimination, marginalization, et cetera. Police brutality, sometimes even with people who were not white, <laughs> they were could be Asian, and in the case of Judge with the other guys were Latino, Asian, and they didn't do anything. So we decided to go backwards because we said we don't deal with this issue. We're not going to solve Will it have results? <laughs> do you think that they will take the calls for reparations seriously?
0: I don't know. Now, the UN's human rights chief will be in China this week. Michelle Bachelet is the first person in the job to visit China in 17 years.
1: Bachelet has come under fire from human rights groups and Uyghurs overseas. as Bachelet...
0: She's due to go to Xinjiang, the remote region where Beijing is accused of systematic abuse of China's Uyghur Muslim minority. I'm going to have to ask you about China. Mm-hmm. Because Please, so hey. this was a kind of thing, an ongoing part of your time as Human Rights Commissioner. And you did come under a lot of pressure and and quite a lot of criticism. People were saying, where's the report? Is the the Human Rights Office just sitting on it and doing nothing? In the end, this report came out very detailed, very hard-hitting, I'm wondering now though, how you coped with that pressure. If you know you're actually working hard and that every time you open a newspaper or read an email, there's some criticism. That can't be too easy. Well,
1: you know, um pressures came from everywhere. Uh every time I had meetings with the European Union, the question will come and really then when will come, etc. Uh so probably because I understand what politics is and what geopolitics is. I knew they was part of the job. I knew this will happen anyway. And I used to tell them, look, if you ask me not to publish this, then tomorrow another big country will call me and say, no, publish this, and then the other big country will come so then the only thing I can do is to hold back on. Because I have to do my job. I have to, if I commit to something, I will do it. And I won't, I won't give it to my successor. The, the task of doing it, I would. It might take me long because I needed to be serious, professional, to give the opportunities to everyone to give their arguments and their uh, uh, their experiences, and then we needed to make uh, something that we feel it is serious. Hmm? So there was lots of pressure, lots of criticism, but you know what? Um, there was this saying in the office when everybody criticizes, they're not going back. It's only one person says you are doing something wrong, but if everybody means that okay,
0: you are trying to do your things, it not easy, but I think you need to do what you need. It's interesting that this is something that uh, journalists say to themselves as well. If both sides of an argument are criticizing you, you're 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 on the right track. There, <laughs> yeah. it was nice to share some laughter with Michelle Bachelet over the challenges of the job. But as she frequently said over the course of our interview, there's not much to laugh about in our world right now. Her time in office saw the Covid-19 pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The airstrikes rolled on hour after hour. Palestinian armed groups undeterred, kept up their own barrage of Israel. Fleeing for their lives those living in the north of the Gaza Strip, heading south. Now, the renewed conflict in the Middle East fills her with concern and sadness. Well,
1: my heart is broken. My heart is broken. First of all, the massacre that Hamas did is terrible. But on the other hand, even though Israel says that this is a war against Hamas and not Palestine, today I was listening to 1,017 children who have died because of the bombs. So the problem with all wars is the civilians are the ones who die. And I think this is terrible because war exists, but there are rules. that have to be respected, you have people there that needs a humanitarian corridors so they can get food, medicines, water, electricity. And I, I feel that the international community has been slow to respond, slow and weak. The response weak. And people are suffering and, and my heart is broken.
0: So for my very last question, I wanted to know from Michelle Bachelet how she views the Universal Declaration of Human Rights now. Is it, in its 75th year, fit for purpose?
1: I mean, the Universal Declaration is still valid because it gives sort of the minimal, if I would say, standards how we can live together. All those things that we learned after the First and Second World War. But of course, many people feel that it's just a document. It doesn't make it a reality, neither in their own countries. But on the other hand, I feel that still really important. But of course, some people, for example, say, oh, there are new issues. We need to remake it. But they said, no, please, this can be a pandora I say this is good in us and we can improve it during, in whatever is needed. Uh, new things. For example, people from the LGBTI community says we need to be included. I say, look, it says all people, all persons, all, everyone. So everyone with every diversity is included there. As one African judge said in one of the meetings, what for me is justice and what is for me uh, justice or, and it's not right is that a baby can have, if it's cold, can be warm, if it's hungry, can have the food. I mean, if you bring it to the real life, think as Eleanor Russell said that Human rights, they had to be in the village, in the street, at the school, etc.
0: Human rights in the village, in the street, in the schools, everywhere. A reminder there from Michelle Bachelet that that was Eleanor Roosevelt's vision and she was the guiding light of the Universal Declaration in 1948. That brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Michelle Bachelet for her time and her wisdom. Here at Inside Geneva, we'd also like to know what you think. Does the Universal Declaration need changing to reflect new awareness of equality and identity? Or is it all a waste of time, since so many don't seem to respect its values? Tell us what you think by writing to us at InsideGeneva at SwissInfo.ch or even record us an audio message and we can try to respond in an upcoming episode. In the meantime, you can catch up on previous editions of Inside Geneva, from the situation for women in Afghanistan to human rights defenders in Russia to debates about artificial intelligence or institutional racism in humanitarian agencies. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swissinfo, the international public media company of Switzerland. Available in many languages as well as English check out our other content at www.swissinfo.ch. I'm Imogen folks. Thanks again for listening, and do join us again next time on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.